As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and our latest round of listener questions. Today, we're building a co-ed US National Team 11. We're taking the ties out of Major League Soccer and we're finding out who the Jim Harbour of soccer is. Is it Joe Lowry? We'll find out. I don't know. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to answer all these questions and many, many more, we have Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello. I've never been more excited for Graham to answer a question <laughs> than I am for Graham to break down Jim Harbaugh's career, his importance to various fan bases, and what he has been as a coach. Uh, Graham, so excited for your... I, I think you said clear out for like 15 minutes, right? Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've got loads of opinions on on Jim. I, I, pre- I presume that's a Scottish name, Jim Harbaugh. Jimmy yeah. Harbaugh. Yeah, that's you how you say James. that in Scottish dialect. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. One of, one of my favourite uh, sports people, persons. Yeah. Excellent. Oh. We look forward to an accident coming up. Graham Rutherford joining us. Also with us, the aforementioned Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hey, I, I, Graham, to bring it back to Jim Harbaugh so we can just beat this into the ground before we even get to the question, what did you make of his time as the Raiders quarterback coach? I know there's been a lot said about all those different mm. things. What, what was your impression of his time there in the early 2000s? Yeah, it was certainly a time for him there at the Oakland Raiders. Absolutely. Uh, which now may be the Las Vegas Raiders. American hey. sports are difficult to keep keep track of. Is that right? Or is that a thing that's happening? Well done. I Graham. get a point for that at least, surely. Graham, the the uh, the like the hot take sort of TV approach is just a he was just an innovator. He was just an innovative quarterbacks <laughs> coach. And then when the follow up question is what did he innovate, your answer is what didn't he? And then move on really quickly and you're fine. Right. Yeah. He was a people person. You oh, know, yeah. just like to please people. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Great innovator. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it indeed. Great innovator, just like Graham Rutherford. That's what we say around these parts, right? Yeah. Always, always got his fingers in some pies, so to speak. Anyway, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. (laughs) If you'd like to support our show, uh, it is uh, a place where you can find bonus episodes. We'll have some bonus listener questions going on there after we record this thing here. We've got bonus video. And of course, most importantly, perhaps access to our discord it's the fun twitter everybody join us in there if you will joe what do you say should we get to some listener questions feel like it yes 
All right, we've got Joe's approval to get going. Let's do it. Samuel Parsons says, do you think that Saudi Arabia really have a chance of becoming a soccer superstar country? I believe, if I'm uh, not mistaken, Joe Larry, this is the young person who asked us about coaching in the previous uh, episode. So welcome back, Samuel. Let's go. the, I sounded like I was 100 years old saying, the this young is the young person. person. <laughs> I, sorry, to peel back the curtain the even further. The one young person who listens to us. <laughs> Ryan and Graham have been going back and forth in our Slack chat about fashion of today and just sort of marveling at it. Mm. I'll admit, like, I'm, I'm not trying to claim that I'm up to date on the latest trends because I'm not. But it has been a, a real week so far, and it's only Wednesday of, like, wow, maybe we all are getting old. And it, it, it's yeah. coming right. across. Ryan, how many XXL hoodies have you have you bought since we had the, the discussion about how Baggy is back? Yeah, I I won't be doing that. I will I will wait for that one to come and go. That fashion, yeah. Graham. I think you say that. You say that Lulu drops something and then it's yeah. Change. I've been oh, buying well, XXL case. hoodies for years, but not because I'm trying to stay young to try and hide the uh, the old beer <laughs> belly. <laughs> anyway, goodness me, let's get back to the topic. Uh, Saudi Arabia becoming a real top tier superstar soccer country. It's an interesting one, Joe. I think because. If you look at throwing money in uh, a large amount of money in a short period of time at a league, it hasn't worked in recent history if you look at something like China. And I wonder whether throwing money at something can intrinsically make it compelling. If you bring mm. the best superstars, will it make it compelling? Or do people like soccer? Do people like this game more for the culture and the mm. history that may not be present in the Saudi Arabian game? The answer is yes, right? Like that, that is the answer to both of those things. Your country can have a great soccer culture and there are a lot of countries around the world that frankly we don't spend a lot of time talking about because there's soccer everywhere that have fantastic culture and that have a compelling product in that way for fans in that country. But there's a limit when you only have the culture inside of your own country. There's a limit to what you can reach and what is a truly global sport. On the flip side, Ryan, you mentioned throwing a bunch of money at the problem, something that China did and didn't really see much lasting benefit to going out there and tossing a bunch of money at their league. And without the culture, it seems like those things tend to be fleeting and don't actually leave a lasting impact either. So the answer is you need both of those things. And we're seeing in the United States that there's not still a ton of money in the grand scheme of things and there's not a ton of culture either. And growth is slow, even though growth is very, very real. So taking the question literally, what Samuel asked, can they become a soccer a soccer powerhouse, basically? I think the answer is yes. I think Saudi Arabia do have a chance to become a soccer powerhouse. You've seen intent with all their recent signings, spent almost a billion euros in transfers this year. That was more than every league but the Premier League. The, 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 on top of the spending, though, to get in players like Ronaldo and Benzema and Sadio Mane, whatever, right? On top of all that is the fact that they have a real chance, I think, to build a culture. It's going to be difficult, and doing that is way harder, way harder than spending a bunch of money for Saudi Arabia. One of those things is easy. We saw them do it almost overnight. One of those things will take literal years and potentially decades, but they do have a chance to build a a somewhat organic soccer culture between now and the next decade. They're getting the World Cup in 2034. That's like soccer's worst kept secret at this point. They're the only bidders. It will be held in Saudi Arabia in 2034. And they have a decent amount of time between now and then to actually build some of the infrastructure to build out the league, to build out the sport in the country, to actually allow culture to grow. So I think it's possible. I think it's going to take a really long time for them to be anywhere near the conversation of like an elite league like we see in in the top four in Europe or like a national team that has a legitimate chance to, to go and make a run at a World Cup. It's going to be a long time. But is it possible? Do they have a chance? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so you're saying there's a chance. I like that. Uh, Taylor, 
it's interesting to talk about the, the the concept of culture. Does does that mainly require fan buy in to develop that culture, or is it something that can be done on the field? Um, I think it can depend. Uh, I think it can be both, and I think also when you talk about fandom, I think it can also be not necessarily fans in the country. Because I've said this before, and I will say it again. I think Saudi Arabia has certainly has the potential, and I think is likely to try to become a dominant soccer power. I just don't know how Western facing they will be. And I think if they are recruiting heavily from Africa and developing players and maybe being an intermediary league or trying to keep those talents, if they're bringing in players from the Middle East and from Asia, I think they can be a very appealing team to a broader fan base. And then also people who are like visiting the country, tourists coming into the country, maybe you're adding in that soccer infrastructure. And now there's another reason to visit uh, aside from the reasons that already exist. So I, I think there they can continue to build a fan base in the country and abroad i do also think from what i understand there is a pretty rabid like soccer uh fandom in the country itself somewhat for the national team somewhat for the domestic league largely for as i understand it barcelona and real madrid surprise surprise uh as well as a few other clubs in there as well but i think it really hasn't been as much of a like widely supported domestic league and i think that is something that they hope to change to the question, I absolutely think that there's uh, more than a chance that they will become a soccer superstar country. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that phrasing exactly I entails. I love that phrasing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think, like, I think back, like, I don't know, like a year ago when it's like, oh, well, they're never going to get big names going there. They're only going to get like, like bloated superstars, and then they get big names. They're they're never going to get coaches. They get coaches. They're never going to get a World Cup. It's Saudi Arabia. They're going to get the World Cup. Like every single thing that we've said, they're probably not going to do. They have done thus far. And to Joe's point, the infrastructure is the thing that I think separates them from, say, China, who they are constantly compared to in a sort of negative way. I see as like, well, China did this and spent a bunch of money, and it didn't work out for them. Why would it work out for Saudi Arabia? As though they're the exact same thing, following the exact same blueprint. Whereas I think with Saudi Arabia, they're getting the World Cup, they're building that infrastructure. I think there's a dedicated effort to develop the tourism industry, to develop different areas of the country. And we've talked about that with some of their dystopian future cities that aren't quite yet dystopian, but will be in short order. Um, I, I think that this is all part and parcel of that. And so when you have infrastructure, when you have all of the developments around the game itself, I think there's a pretty strong chance that they become a pretty dominant league or a dominant league in not that distant of a future. One of my good friends was at an Al Nasser game this week and said the atmosphere, Graham, was tremendous. Was it Johnny Infantino? Yeah, yeah, he was on his he was on his cell phone the whole time, but I think he caught some of the game. Um, Graham, let's let's apply the Graham Ruthman litmus test. Uh, are you regularly watching Saudi games now? Uh, I would be if I had access to them. I think they're on DAZN in the UK now, and I haven't quite. DAZN in the UK is largely boxing. I'm not a massive boxing fan, but I, I have have thought about subscribing to DAZN, to DAZN easy for me to say, uh, a couple times. Saudi Arabia, just going off the back of what Taylor was saying there about the kind of the fandom within the country, it is a confusing country because there's 40 million people that live in Saudi Arabia. So we're not talking about Qatar, where it was just Gianni Infantino. And then like half a million foreign labourers in that country for 10 years. There are a lot of people there. There's untapped potential. But I was looking at attendance figures for, I think it was Al Etifak, which is uh, Steven Gerrard's team. Regularly this season, or more than once this season, they've played in front of 400 fans. 
which is less than Sterling Albion get for our. That's like half what Sterling Albion get for our games. So that is there. There, there's definitely Taylor was talking about how the domestic league maybe hasn't capitalised on that fandom that's there for European teams and for the national team. I think that is a key aspect for the for the Saudi Pro League. I, I think it is entirely feasible that the Saudi Pro League maybe not becomes the the next Premier League or maybe on a par with the Premier League, but I think it's entirely. Uh, realistic for it to become one of the best leagues in the world uh, uh, up there with the big five European leagues and I think I've said this before I think a big factor will be the lack of FFP rules that's becoming a bigger and bigger discussion in European football with obviously the charges against Man City and we had Everton's points deduction recently and all the rest and the Saudi Pro League isn't bound by FFP rules because FFP is largely a UEFA thing FIFA does have some spending guidance but one it is very very loose and two FIFA quite relishes the idea of a competitive league outside UEFA to help loosen UEFA's grip on club football. So there is a political desire from FIFA to have a league outside Europe that is competitive on on that level. So financially, we've already kind of covered that so far. I read the report not so long ago that the the public investment fund has ring-fenced $7 billion for player transfers and wages alone over the next five years. They spent one billion this year, so there's there's still quite a bit of the kitty left. So financially, but also po- politically, I think if Saudi Arabia keeps on their current trajectory, I, I don't think it's just possible that it will be a big soccer country. I think it's kind of unavoidable. Wow, those four hundred fans are going to be thrilled uh, at effect when uh, <laughs> another seven billion worth of uh, players comes through the doors. There, that's great. I, I, my feeling, Graham, is the the buy-in from international broadcasters is going to be important for how much of a superstar league this league is perceived as whether that's in the west or elsewhere you say like it's it's not the easiest thing to see those games in the uk i think if i'm mistaken it's not terribly easy to see them in the us either at this point but when they start to become uh you know more commonplace when the big advertising brands can put their branding all over it as they do the other big major leagues in the champions league that to me is when it becomes more of a serious contender. But see, that's but that's what I'm saying is like that's entirely a Western oriented yeah, perspective. But what, what it's big say. in England and the United States is like, I mean, what if they don't globally. care about that? What if they care more about the Chinese market, which is a huge market? What if they care more about capturing the African market? Like that's that's what I'm getting at is I'm not sure that's their interest because that market is so supremely saturated. I think it could be one day and probably is definitely part of their plans because how can you ignore those markets? But I don't think that that metric is necessarily what they're going for versus Africa, the Middle East, Asia, other countries that maybe haven't felt as enfranchised yeah. by that European mm-hmm. dominance. I think that is where they can make a ton of money th- and get a ton of buy-in. I still, Yeah, I, I get the point, Taylor, but I still think there's that homogenization that can happen in those markets as well. You can get China's biggest brand sponsoring them or, or the, the, you know, Af- African ones too. And then when it becomes a global product, when it comes outside of the 400 people who go to Artifact Games, then it becomes more of a serious contender, I suppose is the point I was making. Not necessarily Western-facing, but global. Okay. <laughs> Let's, uh, thank you very much, Samuel, for that question. Let's say we move on to one from Ian Brady, shall we? Should MLS have penalty kicks to decide regular season games, just like in hockey? Either three full points for penalty kick wins, or maybe, like hockey, two to the winner and one to the loser. Uh, Looking at the table, most teams uh, had between eight to 11 ties of 34 games. That's almost a third, says Ian. Um, He'd be looking also, be interested, Ian would be interested in five minutes uh, with seven versus seven full field games with poor penalty kicks, removing four players, 40% of non-goalies removed like uh, hockey. Lots of the things we've kind of discussed, Taylor, before on this feed. 
I mean, we've had shootout tiebreakers in MLS, MLS before, of mm-hmm. course. From 96 to 99, we had the uh, the MLS penalty thing, which was wonderful in its own way. Is it better? Is it a good USP for you, uh, for MLS to el- eliminate tyres and uh, eliminate those third of games which end on as even? Or are we betraying hmm. the game to do so? Uh, yes and no simultaneously is my answer. I'll explain. First of all, I love the idea of extra time uh, reducing players and going that route. Generally speaking, I think within the context of an actual league season, seventy-seven fixt- is wild. For, for that. <laughs> oh, it would be awesome! But I think with fixture congestion combined with like issues we already have with number of games, number of minutes players are playing, I think to have them play more minutes with fewer people on the pitch is going to be an instant problem for player health and also the quality of the game. So I love it for like big tournaments, but I don't know if we'll get it for the league. I think. Like, I really like this idea. I think it would be, like, shocking as that may be. I just think if you're MLS and we've seen them trying to get more butts and seats, more people attending games, more people staying for games and, like, leaving as soon as Lionel Messi is subbed out, maybe that's not the ideal for them. I think people are going to stick around for a shootout if it's nil-nil versus if it's the 75th minute and and it's nil-nil, I feel like you tend to get that sort of energy dissipating from the stadium. Uh, but I don't think it will happen because I think MLS likes being an innovative league where they try new things and can be sort of a, a proving ground for certain new concepts or new ideas. I think this might be a step too far into the wacky days of the NASL and MLS 1.0. And I think that is maybe where they tend to draw the line is anything that makes it seem like, oh, there they go in America trying ridiculous things that are never going to work. That is where I think they would be too afraid of being branded a Mickey Mouse mm-hmm. League to try something like that. Can I ask Taylor or really mm-hmm. whoever off of this? Because I, I also don't think that this is the way to go here. Before I get to my question, I'll lay, lay a little bit more of the groundwork because for me, where I started my research was Ian's right. There there have been a decent number of draws in MLS this year, and I think his math is, is about right here. 29% of games have ended in a draw in MLS so far this season. That's up from 25% last year. It was 27% in 2021. So let's just average it out to 27% over the last three years and, and call it a good. In the Premier League, as an example, I needed a lead to compare MLS to to see if there are actually more draws. Like, is this a problem? Is this happening more? Or is this just kind of a, a manufactured of our, of our minds, right? So in the Premier League, to use them as the example, 23% of games last year ended in a draw. 23% the year, the year before. And it's been in the low to mid 20% for several years now. So I do think there's something to this idea that there are more draws in Major League Soccer, certainly than the league that gets consumed most, not necessarily in the United States, because I think Liga Mekis gets it on her, but the English-speaking language league that gets consumed most and is generally regarded as the best league in the world. And there's probably things to be learned from that league. So I do think this is a valid discussion to have of are there too many draws in Major League Soccer? Taylor, my question for you or for Graham or for whoever is does incentivizing going at an even scoreline until the end of the game, more, which is what you do when you add a, a larger benefit, a larger potential payoff for something that happens after the final whistle. Does that incentive make it more likely for teams to play tighter, cagier games that leads to more draws? Because if that's the case, I'm definitely against this idea. Do you think that's the case? Like, Do you think teams would sit in more and just sort of be more okay with nil-nils or one-ones because they know they can nick an extra point or even two points after the final whistle? I don't. I think some teams might. From my experience, I hate penalties. And I feel like there's that looming fear of like, oh, no, 
like, and maybe professionals are different. They are certainly wired differently than I am. But I think fundamentally there is a, like, I don't want to have to take one. I don't want to have to miss. There's that fear. There's that anxiety about it. And I think if you've maybe lost your first two shootouts, uh, there might be a little bit more trepidation towards going to your third. And maybe you do push a little bit more. Maybe certain teams would just practice it and that would be, like, I feel like Nashville would get really good at penalties <laughs> and just be okay with, with like, nil-nil draws, one-one draws. But I think, largely speaking, I think when it's the 80th minute and the shootout is looming, yeah, Joe, there probably would be games where they would just be like, you know what, whatever, we're both going to sit off, it's fine. Right. But I think there's also an argument that maybe if it's like an MLS midseason game, they might be doing that anyway. So at the Fair. very least, you're getting a reason to stick around for some drama at yeah. the end. I'm not saying I love this as a like general soccer supporter, but if you are trying to get more interest in the league in this country and people attending games... A shootout is a way to do that. Yeah. Neutrals will stick around and watch a shootout. People will stop eating ice cream and chasing their children at a game to watch a shootout. I guess the way I, the way I think about it is there's almost nothing to be nervous about in this particular shootout because you're already in this framework. If you get a draw and then it goes to the shootout afterwards, you're still getting the one point that you used to get. Like there is only upside. There is only payoff to going and, and having the, the penalty kick shootout after the draw if you're a team that was going to draw anyway. So... I guess I, I kind of go the other way as you were answering that. I, I think I think this would probably incentivize tighter, cagier games because there's just more benefit to having a draw in this current setup than there was in the one we actually have in real life. So I, I would go away from this. But one thing I was thinking about is, okay, if the Premier League has fewer draws on average than Major League Soccer, why is that, right? They're still playing the same sport. The league is generally formatted the same way in that you get three points for a win and one point it's for a draw and zero line. points for a lot. Yeah, it's that. So I think I think that's a possible outcome. My other thought is <laughs> I think three of three of your three co-hosts think that's the outcome. Well, yeah, I, go ahead. I, uh, sorry, yeah, I guess you guys have it all solved. I'll just, I'll just shut up. No, I think I think another part of this is like there's a bigger quality difference from the top to bottom in the Premier League. Like it's it's more clearly divided. There are more striations in the Premier League than there are in Major League Soccer. Where in MLS there's a handful of very good teams, a handful of very bad teams, and a whole lot of mush in the middle, right? And so I think you end up with a lot of uninspiring draws because there's just not that much separating these teams on any given day. So I think a natural way that would decrease draws would be to go and let the teams that want to be more ambitious be more ambitious. Like like create some of those gaps and divides in your league that aren't, you know, hmm. unbridgeable, but to have a little bit more difference. And I think that would help bring things down. Ryan or, or Graham, what do you guys think is the, is the explanation behind the playoff line and how that plays into the draws? For, for, I'll, I'll let Graham jump in, but for me, well, I'm not letting Graham jump in because I'm jumping in. Uh, <laughs> I think I think there is a, there's a sense, certainly for me, that for two thirds of the season, yeah. you'd be happy with a point. Yeah, and yeah, for the last third of the season, for a yeah, lot of because the you're not going to get relegated. You don't have to go for the, you don't have to send your keeper up after 90 minutes in the first two thirds of the season at any point. Um, so that would be my thought that that would encourage more tie games, Graham. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to artificially replicate the intensity of just a straight league season where three points are extremely valuable. And in MLS and the current structure, we seem to speak about this every single week, but it's a big talking point. In MLS and the current regular season structure, um, three points aren't as valuable as they are in another league that doesn't have either doesn't have a playoff um, system or doesn't admit as many teams into the playoffs at the end of the season so I take your point Joe I think that's an interesting point about the difference between the top and the bottom of the Premier League that probably is a factor as well but in my opinion a bigger factor is just that the regular season doesn't have the same stakes. Joe 
I, I don't want to misrepresent what you've said, so I just want to like summarize and you tell me if I've got it right. Are, is your argument basically that because of the imbalance in the Premier League, you have some teams that are more defensive, and so you would like there to be basically a greater imbalance in Major League Soccer so that the teams that want to be, like th- those big teams that win every single game are allowed to do so against teams that are more okay with a draw? I, I don't think it's about defensive or attacking, or I, I didn't get into any of the tactical side, but I think in the Premier League, there's a greater imbalance of talent which then, in my brain at least, leads to fewer draws because there is less balance on the field itself. And I think Major League Soccer, this is what you've been talking about with the playoff structure. Like, I think Major League Soccer would benefit from having a little bit more imbalance such that there's just more quality in the league. Like, let teams that want to go do stuff, do stuff. Let them win games in the regular season. Let them go out and and show that they are significantly better than some of these teams that don't seem to care. And I think that not only drives more interest from people that aren't really tuned into MLS right Mm -hmm. now, but I also think you end up with less bad, fewer bad kind of cagey games that turn into draws. This may well take us very into the weeds. I, I feel like that's sort of a chicken or the egg scenario, though, right? Like, couldn't it also be that there is a massive financial imbalance in the Premier League, so certain teams have to play more defensively because they can't keep up with the financial well, giants? Not- I think Joe's point isn't that they're playing defensively. It's just that they're, the bottom teams are bad teams and the top teams are very good. So they find it easier to beat them. Whereas in MLS, there's more draws because there's more parity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that- I think in Major League Soccer, there's, and this is what I said before. I, I think that's that's right on, Graham. I think in Major League Soccer, I'm not sure this is right, by the way. This is just a theory. I don't know how to prove this. I think in MLS, there's a whole lot more blech. Like there's just a whole bunch of teams in the middle that aren't really good and they're <laughs> not like horrific either. They're just kind of there, right? Jim Curtin talked about, after losing, so it's a little bit of sour grapes for the union over the weekend, like how talked about how he'd rather be in his position as a team that's actually trying to do stuff and not really on the spending side, but you get the idea rather than like 25 other MLS clubs that never play a meaningful game. And that speaks to what you guys are talking about. But it also speaks to the fact that there's still not this massive group of teams that are really trying mm-hmm. to be super ambitious and a lot of teams that are really struggling. I think the lack of, of difference and having so many teams be so tight together where the middle two thirds or three quarters of the league is almost identical I think having that is something that leads to a lot of games that are really tight. Can I ask the group a, a question about the premise of, of Ian's question? Um, are draws a bad thing? Are draws a problem? I don't want to you know, lean on stereotype and cliche here, but if we're talking about an American market and MLS and how can it grow, sure. are, are draws a problem? Because for me, I, I, I kind of like draws. I mean, I don't, I don't mean the obviously wins are better as a fan, but as a concept, I, I quite like the concept of draws. Um, I don't think they're necessarily a problem I think it really is the playoffs I I think it's a feeling of like so many times in the Premier League when it's a draw there's a feeling of points lost or points won and that's the the, Rob McElhinney summed that up really well it's like sometimes the draw feels like a win sometimes the draw feels like a loss this one feels like like a loss that's That's so well said (laughs) exactly but I think in MLS maybe I'm wrong but my like my feeling is that more often there's a like yeah whatever there's you know 30 more games to be played and nine teams make the playoffs. So I, it feels less impactful and it feels more of a like a thing that can happen and everyone's kind of OK with it versus I think when there's a draw in the Premier League, certainly sometimes people are OK with it or oftentimes people are OK with it, depending on their uh, position in the table. But it, it, do, it feels like it has more of an impact. It has more resonance and is therefore more meaningful in the long run because it's a single table. I, I think that really is the thing for me is it, it ends up just feeling sort of like uh, a bunch of draws and then the ninth place team gets in. Yeah, yeah whatever. Like it, it all just kind of ends up feeling like eh, whatever. So as yeah. long as we're going eh, whatever, throw penalties in because that's at least a fun whatever. 
Yeah, I I think uh, to circle all the way back, I don't think this this rule that Ian's proposing would improve and would do what it, it maybe is trying to do. But I do think ultimately you guys are right, and I've been banging on this drum for a long time. I think the biggest factor in all of this yep. is absolutely the fact that the regular season just doesn't matter enough in Major League Soccer. And there's yeah. a whole bunch of ways to try and fix that. All of them are difficult. None of them MLS seems particularly inclined to act upon. So it's it's a head scratcher, and I think MLS has created this system where, yeah, I haven't looked at all the data for all the leagues, but at least compared to the Premier League, there are more draws throughout the year, and yeah. that's not ideal. I know we're going very long here, but I think Joe has really like landed on the solution because I, I think what I've what I've come around to with the playoffs is you want as many teams as possible in the playoffs. I think in in most sports that's going to create the drama. I think what what the problem is for me is that you're not rewarding superior talent. And and Joe is dead on. I think if if MLS tripled the salary budget and and allowed for five DPs and certain teams really went for that and spent a ton of money, and you're getting more talent and more exciting games, I want expanded playoffs. I want more teams in the playoffs because it's more exciting soccer played in a knockout competition. Let's do it. But where it when it feels like... Let's do the bare minimum, scrape into the playoffs, and then we can say it was a successful season and we don't have to really change what we're doing. It feels more like you're rewarding mediocrity than you are rewarding endeavor. And so I think Joe's dead on that really the solution is letting them spend more money and letting some teams truly separate. Um, Joe, if Ian's uh, proposal was put in place, uh, given that you've admitted earlier in the feed that you don't really like goals, if it was a nil-nil, <laughs> would you uh, would you just turn off the TV at the end and walk away, go do Arizona things while the shootout's taking place? I mean, that's a, just a job well done, a nil-nil, folks. That's that, This is what we live for. I'm here for it. Excellent stuff. Uh, thank you very much, Ian. As always, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're building a co-ed 11 for the US. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Maya NS has been in touch and says, Mixed relays are now in the Olympics and World Championships for track and field and swimming. If there were a co-ed World Cup, what would be the US starting 11? And which country would win, or at least have the best chance at winning, the World Cup in a world, Graham, with a co-ed World Cup? Just, just picture it. It's like Starship <laughs> Troopers when they're, you know, gender-neutral bathrooms. Wonderful. Yeah, it'd be, I mean, it'd be quite fun. I don't I don't know what I'm taking from it. I don't know what I'm learning from it. But from a chaos <laughs> point of view, I guess, you know, as a kind of summer I, tournament, which I guess is what a major tournament most of the time is. Yeah, yeah I, w- I would watch this. Um, I'm, I built I'm taking like away, US- sorry, Graham, I'm taking away that Ryan really enjoyed the shower scene in Starship Troopers. <laughs> is what I'm taking away from that from that summary. <laughs> was, was, did Ellie McBeal also have that? Uh, I think like, they did, yeah. Yeah, I was just trying to make a, a pop culture reference that Joe wouldn't get. That's what I was trying to do. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, you succeeded. Great work. 
<laughs> oh dear. Uh, oh, all right. Who wants to build a, a co-ed uh, yeah, US go, national team? Go on. Go I'll go first. So goalkeeper uh, Matt Turner, left back Crystal Dunn, centre backs Naomi Gurma, and I, I really struggled with the mm-hmm. other centre back. I'm going to go with C. I'm going to go with CCV just because of my own personal bias. But uh, right back Sergino Dest. Then my midfield is Tyler Adams, Musa, Rose Lavelle. Then I've got um, Christian Pulisic on the left. Then I've got um, Sophia Smith through the middle and Trinity Rodman on the other wing. Other wing. Um, I, I, um, I still think the US and a co-ed World Cup is kind of a two-tier nation. If we're talking about the, the men's team being a two-tier nation, I'm not sure this really changes anything for the men's team and for the women's team. I think this maybe drags them down a little <laughs> bit. So I'm not sure what this, this kind of accomplishes because if I'm looking at who the, the tier one teams would be in this tournament, I think it's France. I think it's England. I think it's Spain. In terms of talent, I think Germany, although the last two World Cups for both of their teams have been disasters. But in terms of players, I think Germany are up there as well. So the the US um, kind of fall from tier one to tier two, I think. Yep. I, and I would throw Japan somewhere in between tier one and tier two. I feel like they are the perennial dark horses on both the men's and women's side, even though they've won a World Cup on the women's side. So I would I would say their national team combined would be pretty uh, formidable as well. But yeah, Graham, I think England, Spain and France, all pretty solid shouts. I also have a feeling that we're all going to have a different uh, men's center back partner because I'm going to assume that Joe has Chris Richards. See, <laughs> <laughs> Joe, do you have Matt Turner or did you yeah, go a different I do. route? So I was I was right on with Graham yep. up until he said Chris Richards. So I have Turner in goal. I have Dest at right back, Crystal Dunn at left back, Gurma at center back. She's the obvious center back, but really. Both the men and the women have some question marks around the center back spot right now. The U.S. call up Abby Dahlkemper and Tierna Davidson into their most recent camp. Naomi Gurma, though, was really the only locked in center back starter for either the men's or the women's team. And she is incredible. But who you put next to her felt like a real question. The rest of the back line fits really well. I guess you could have a question about the goalkeeper. But I'm not really sold on any of the U.S.'s current you know, in-camp yeah. options on the women's side in goal. So I went Turner there. And then I have Tyler Adams in my midfield as well. I went with McKenney over Musa Graham, and I also went with uh, with Giorena over Rose Lavelle. But I'm I'm good either way on that front. You're not going to hear me complaining. And then I have Christian Pulisic on the right. I have Mallory Swanson on the left, and I think Graham you went with Rodman, which is a, a great choice as well. And then I have some Sophia Smith through the middle. So we were really really similar. Just a couple of of kind of rungs off there. And I have gone a different way. Uh, I do have Matt Turner in goal. I think if you asked this question four years ago, probably we all would have gone to listen air, but right now there is just a bit more confusion as to who the number one is and how they're going to play. So I'd go Matt Turner. I had Emily Fox because Serginho Des must be punished. Uh, Miles Robinson, <laughs> Naomi Gurma, Jedi, uh, Jedi on the left. Apologies to Crystal Dunn. Uh, I, I also felt weird that like even in a co-ed combined 11, she still has to play left back. So instead she's on the bench. Controversially, I do not have Tyler Adams in my team. I've gone Yudis Musa, I've gone Rose wow. Lavelle, I've gone Lindsey Horan, and then I had Mallory Swanson, Christian Pulisic wide with Florian Balogun uh, through the middle. So I guess only one person in this pod actually likes Florian Balogun. Uh, Joe, that's a betrayal from you. <laughs> if uh, if I'm given the choice between Sophia Smith and Florian Balogun, Florian Balogun will be hitting the curb ASAP. So I, uh, <laughs> I think that's an easy one for me. <laughs> All right. Um, t- Taylor, is the equation altered if there are rules around the uh, balance of male to female players in a squad? Or in an eleven, uh, I'm just thinking if if mm-hmm. uh, if the US are required to only required to field say three female players and they end up fielding seven or eight male players, then they're, they're weakened somewhat, or vice versa with some other nations. Perhaps. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, because you've all you've all yeah. gone for pretty balanced teams, I'll say, in terms of gender. Yeah, I think I think Joe threw out the six and five yeah. combo, right? I think what is coed 
I think co-ed is generally seven and four is, is seven men, four women, I think is what tends to happen. And I feel like oftentimes teams will put uh, a, a female player in goal and then, and then it's three outfield players. So yeah, but Ryan, that aside, I think you're, you're right though, that I think like if the balance, if you had to do uh, six women's team players and five men's team players, I think like the U S does sort of their standing goes up. The more women are in the team versus the more men. I do think it, it sort of balances the other way. Yeah, perhaps so. Yeah. Uh, so Graham, um, England or Spain winning this thing? What do you think? Or Scotland. The more I thought about this, I quite like this for Scotland. We could have Caroline Weir and, and Aaron Cuthbert in a, in a mixed team. And then uh, 15 left backs. Yeah, well, exactly. Whole team of left backs and then Caroline Weir, who is, you know, the best player in Spain last last season or this season. Um, so that, I'd, I'd quite like that. Yeah, we lack a, a world-class attacker. So All we'll right. take Weir and Cuthbert. Anyone with a serious answer, Joe? <laughs> uh, I've got England and Spain as co-favorites. Yeah. So let's go Spain because they just won the World Cup. Very nice. I think I'm inclined to agree. Taylor, you inclined to agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think so. I feel like there's also the most, maybe I'm incorrect, but I feel like there's the most commonality in approach. Yeah, for I was Spain. just thinking that. Yep. So I, I feel like they would just play a very like, possession-oriented style and not much else would have to be that different. Very good. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, Maya, for that question. Very interesting one. It is indeed. By the way, let's chat more about this in our Discord, patreon.com slash Show. if you'd like to continue the conversation on this and any other listener questions, including this one from our friend Robert Cordova, who says, how does the Total Soccer Show view Ali Krieger's whole career now she's retired? The Robert Cordova question, if you will. Um, the, uh, Krieger, of course, the two-time World Cup winner who uh, retired in a, uh, the NWSL final, uh, winning that one in the final game of her career, hanging it up. Up at the age of 39 uh joe my uh my favorite uh, ali krieger thing or thing fact is that uh she's uh renowned as kriegs which makes me think she's a sitcom character of sorts and she's yes. got a she walks into the bar and everyone kriegs is here yay studio claps uh, i can, I can, just I can totally see that sitcom yeah. ali krieger I, I think we should make this happen <laughs> uh, I, I believe also, because we were talking before we started recording about the name Krieger and, and the sort of the German origin, I believe that Ali Krieger learned to speak mm-hmm. German when she was playing in Germany early in her career. So good for her. Uh, I think overall, she's had a really strong career. To me, she'll go down as one of the best defenders in the NWSL ever. She was a starter at the 2011 World Cup when the U.S. lost in the final to Japan. She was a starter in 2015 as the U.S. won the World Cup, and that tournament was incredible for the United States. She was in the 2019 squad in a slightly reduced role, but still saw the field. Valuable defender. I think one of the most impressive things about Ali Krieger to, Ali Krieger, to me throughout her career, there we go, is how, how well she aged, right? So I think specifically about this past season in the NWSL, she's very much in the latter stages. It, it feels likely that you know she's not going to be playing for much longer. And she moves position. She moves from fullback to center back for Gotham. And Gotham go on to win the NWSL championship, not only because of Allie Krieger, but in part because of how good she was at controlling space and playing the ball as a center back in Gotham's back four under Amaros. Like her ability to go and, and be the, the real cornerstone for this team that wants to press high. They like playing out of a 4-3-3 shape. They want to push numbers. Like they want to do all that stuff. When you play that way, it puts more demand on your center back than any other way, your center backs, than any other way you can possibly play in this sport. So Krieger performed in that role very, very well, made the switch. Yeah, she'd gotten minutes in different spots before, but I have a lot of respect for how she continued to become and maintain her role as a valuable member of various teams as her career went on. Taylor, thoughts on Ali Krieger? I think it's a really interesting question and a really interesting thought experiment because my sort of general feeling is that 
she's a player who the the general fan base for the U.S. women's national team will sort of forget or maybe not really appreciate that much or have a sort of like, yeah, she was fine reaction. And then I think of hardcore fans of the U.S. or of the NWSL. I think she is like their beloved queen and she is one of their mo- like most prized players. Um because I think she is a, a glue person, is what she seems to me to be. Aside from being a very good player, like in and of itself, I think she is a player who can not get caught up for a while, but then comes in and stabilizes and brings up the energy, brings up the atmosphere. I think she is an important player in that regard. I think that's also how she is publicly. Um, my first introduction to her in a like actual seeing her space was when she was doing an interview with the Cooligans at. Um, at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Chicago, I believe it was, and how just engaging and funny and into stuff she was and really good at riffing. And I think she is just really positive energy. And so I think she she helps make that team maybe better than it would be otherwise. That's why I think she was so important in 2015 and again in 2019 when she plays significantly fewer minutes in 2019 but still comes on as a, a second-half sub, I think a halftime sub, uh, in the final when they beat the Dutch. She played... All but 10 minutes, I think, in total of the 2015 campaign. So much more involved in that one. But she's a player who I think isn't as remarkable, as I said, to casuals because she's a fullback, a casual center back. I think we don't always value what defenders bring into a team unless they are head and shoulders above everyone else. But I think she is a player who just like did her job, did it well and kept doing it for a very long time to Joe's point about longevity. And then I think also there are like the off field aspects of things. Uh, she does a lot of community work, a lot of charity work. Uh, she's very public about her relationship with her brother who has had addiction issues and overcome those issues. And they have a very, if you are online to terminally online, uh, you will know how much like, uh, he is a social media personality and they have a very strong relationship. And so I think there's a wholesome element there. Uh, she, she's also out. She was recently in, or until recently in a relationship with a uh, U.S. teammate, Ashlyn Harris, and they adopted kids together. And so I think for as a, like a, a spokesperson for LGBTQ plus, uh, players i think that is also or just like a, a an important figure i think as well for for the u.s so i think she she has done so many things in her career and i haven't even mentioned the club side where she wins the w league she wins nwsl she wins the Bundesliga, and she wins the champions league which is not a thing that to my mind that many players uh in the united states have done on the women's side certainly on the men's side but on the women's side and so i think that is another thing that maybe doesn't get remembered as much but probably should be she's won a ton of stuff over the years just not the olympics which it's still a bummer, but such is life. Yeah. Taylor, I think the way you opened that with sort of her status among more casual U.S. fans versus more dedicated ones, I think that frames it well. We've had a few different high-profile U.S. players, relatively high-profile, two very high-profile players, retire recently. Julie Ertz, Megan Rapino, Ali Krieger are the three that come to mind. And I would say Krieger is pretty clearly the third most important yeah. player to the U.S. of those three, right? Which I think sort of crystallizes her role and her sort of status within USWNT history, a very, very good player. Like, I do think she has a real argument to be one of the best U.S. defenders ever. There's a lot of good U.S. defenders, but I don't think she will ever be viewed, understandably so, probably rightfully so, as one of the all-time goats, any position for the U.S., still a very, very good player, and, and I think probably an NWSL great as well. Uh, Graham, we've covered it pretty well. Any other Kriegs insights? 
Well, Ali Krieger is, is, is a player that my exposure to her is is, is more recent. Um, a lot of my exposure to the US WNT players is, is through the through the national team, and obviously her her national team career has kind of been on the wind down for a number of years. So I'm I'm maybe not well placed to judge her career as a whole, but obviously read a lot into the final season with with Gotham, which is an incredible story going from the worst in the NWSL to the best. And so for her to to end her career in in, in that way was uh, yeah pretty incredible. Incredible indeed. Taylor, I don't know, I think you watched the TV show Community. There was uh, mm. some episodes where Mitch Hurwitz played a character called Kugler and they had a joke at the end where he had his own sitcom and it was called Kugler. He sort of walked around like Van Wilder in a, in a dressing gown who's like a middle-aged dude. Oh, yeah. That's what, yeah. I, that's what I'm thinking. Krieg's my sitcom, which I'm going to pitch to her at some point. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be that vibe. She's walking around the US women's national team locker room yeah. in a bathrobe, just chatting that's it right. up. Just uh, <laughs> hijinks are plenty. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right, thank you very much, Robert, for that question. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. A few more questions. Back shortly. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Kenneth Seiden has been in touch. Hello, Kenny, who says, can you think of any other players with worse possible final games for their national team and or club than Megan Rapinoe, of course, having a rather unfortunate demise to her career. Um, Graham, has anybody, I don't know, like been sent off in a World Cup final for headbutting (laughs) an opponent which cost their country the game or anything like that? I don't know. Uh, yeah, so Zidane was the one that immediately sprung to mind for me. But then, but then even then, go- going out with a headbutt on an opponent for in- who like in- what's the story? Like he insults his mother or his yeah. sister or something like that. That's a that's a pretty boss way to go out in your career. And also on the, on the club side of things, his last game was a three three draw against Villarreal, and he scored for Real Madrid. So and that's sent not off. bad. <laughs> and yeah. sent oh, off. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> sent <laughs> so, off in both of his final games. It yeah. feels like it was it was planned. It was very Zidane. There was the <laughs> brilliance and, and and then the you know the, the petulance the other side of him I think my nomination though is Gerard Piquet he was sent off from the bench in his last game for Barcelona he didn't even get on the pitch he'd played six games this, that season is this soccer or balloon world cup we're talking about uh, here. <laughs> Sorry. well his balloon world cup career is you know okay. storied and continuing okay. um, it's not over yet but his, his football career um, he got sent off from the bench in his last game for Barcelona it's not even at the end of a season it's in November he'd played six games that season and had been so badly found out his legs were just completely gone that Barcelona and Piquet came to an agreement that, yeah, just retire now. Hmm. And around that same time, there was a big scandal about um, Piquet's events company called Cosmos being 
paid for the staging of the, the Supercoppa in Saudi Arabia and whether Piquet was benefiting from that. And there were secret discussions with Javier Tebas about becoming league president one day. So there is a sense that Piquet retired, not just because he was finished as a player, but kind of to escape that scandal. Um, he was finished at the top level as well. And for Spain, his last game for Spain was that shock exit to Russia at the 2018 World Cup. So I th- I think that's up there with on the on the Rapino scale. In fact, on Rapino scale, I think that's above Rapino because at least with her last match, it's an injury. You know, she can't she can't really be blamed for that. Whereas a red card on the bench amidst a scandal, that one is very much on Gerard Piquet. That's really interesting. I I, I think. There's no one to top Megan Rapino in my mind. Uh, though I think you made a compelling argument there for for Gerard Piquet. The only other nominee I had was Zidane, uh, but I think Rapino does get like the the bad showing at the World Cup and then the injury combined uh, for club. That's a pretty harsh way to go out. Uh, since I don't have anything else to add, I will just uh, bring up, did everyone see uh, Shakira winning the Latin Grammy and how yes. that went down? <laughs> yeah. And who awarded that prize? <laughs> yep, that's the thing. Uh, she wins the award for mocking Gerard Piquet, the song Mocking Gerard Piquet, and it's awarded to her by Sergio Ramos, which is awesome. hilarious to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the organizers have nailed it there. Well done. Joe. The one that I'll add here, um, actually, before, before that, just in case anybody home is listening to this and they're like, no, you guys are all wrong about Megan Rapinoe. She goes and misses the penalty in the World Cup round of 16 against Sweden. The U.S. Mm-hmm. end up losing that game. She does get one more game with the U.S. women's national team as a send-off in a friendly back in September. So technically, her last game with the national team, not so bad. Still, point taken, Kenneth. And you're absolutely right. Like, I think in spirit, the answer is Megan Rapino. Zidane's a great shot. PK's a great shot. Graham, I love that. Uh, the only other one I could think of, because I had a really hard time thinking of off-the-wall answers, is Gonzalo Higuain's last game as a professional soccer player. Came with Inter Miami, came in 2021, <laughs> came at City Field, the home of the New York That's right. Mets, That's right. And they lost to NYCFC. Oh, no. Like they got just absolutely destroyed. They were not a good team. They lost by a bunch and played bad soccer. And Iguain ended up doing his retirement on a baseball field in MLS. And that yeah. felt like a, a pretty big drop off for him in his career, but it's still not Zidane or PK or Rapino. Joe, was um was the Duncan Maguire flick over Michael Bradley? Was that his last game or did oh, he have another game after that? I cannot oh man, okay, Graham. Now I'm looking it up. I don't remember if it was or not. Um, <laughs> because that's a contender. If that's the last game, that's that is, is, is I don't think he wins, but that's a nomination for Michael Bradley if that's his last ever game. Wow. Yeah. Bradley's also won while Joe looks that up, similar to Rapino, where like we will definitely remember that the World Cup as being her last game for the U.S., even though she plays another one. With Bradley and Josie Altidore, I was like convinced that they didn't play for the U.S. after uh, the failure to qualify in Cuba in 2017, but they definitely made plenty more appearances up until I think both of them played in the 2019 Gold Cup and some World Cup qualifiers as well. So that's one where I, I think memory is incorrect, but for that was going to be one of my answers. And then I realized, like, nope, they kept playing. And that is kind of the case with a lot of these, is like, had a career-ending injury and then played two more seasons. So it's kind of yeah. hard to find another one quite like Megan Rapinoe when it comes to that injury at the very, very end. Graham, you were right. All- Graham, you were right. Great call. Awesome. Yes, wow. We didn't think of that. That is that is a brutal one for Michael Bradley. <laughs> uh, there are some comparisons to players who've got sort of career-ending injuries uh, as well that have obviously ended their career on the field. The one that always uh, comes to mind for me is David Boost. Uh, he played for Coventry City in the nineties. Graham uh, Joe's all over this. He knows. All yeah, about yeah, yeah. He, of course. He I was going to mention it, but mind. you interrupted. So. It does for me because. Um, 
he uh, had a, an injury, at, I believe it was Old Trafford, it was against Manchester United. Mm-hmm. It happened right in front of Peter Schmeichel, who needed counselling afterwards because it was so gruesome. It was yeah. just horrendous. It was a leg break, but sort of at the shin. Um, and I always remember they had it on the back page of all the newspapers and it, listen look it up if you're not of a squeamish disposition because it is quite awful it ended his career uh, he i did and i would say uh counterpoint don't look yeah, it up I'm a pass because yeah. the aftermath is not pretty it is not it is there was a yeah uh the game did not progress uh, for a little while after that should we say yeah. um it's yeah uh that one was pretty bad but obviously didn't have as glittering a career as megan rapino uh cut short of course yeah. graham is is there is there also is it worse when a career peters out, like in the manner of Eden Nazar, where we can't even we can't even nail his last game because it just sort of you, faded can, into obscurity? Can, Is I that re- worse? can I rephrase it from high fidelity? Is it fair to judge a formerly great artist by his latter day sins? Is it better to burn out than to fade away? In reference to go. Stevie Wonder, but I guess also uh, Aiden Hazard. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, uh, new even... quote there too, Taylor. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure what Aiden Hazard's last game was. It was probably about two seasons. Or it was probably at the World Cup when Roberto Martinez insisted on starting him in every single game, despite the fact he'd not played for about two seasons. But yeah, that that is quite sad. But I think there's something... There's something kind of weirdly glorious about going out in a blaze of uh, of failure in your last game. I found a couple other players who were sent off in their last game. So Jurgen Koller was sent off in the 2002 UEFA Cup final for Borussia Dortmund. He conceded a penalty in the process and Dortmund lost that game 3-2 to Feyenoord. So that was kind of on him. Edgar Davids was sent off in his final game for... Can was anyone it, guess? Was it Brentford or... Barnet, Barnet, close. that's it. Barnet in the English lower leagues, which was a really, really weird episode. He was sent off five times in 30 games in his final season. Um, so, yeah, I guess there wasn't much dignity what? in that either. So, kind of weird. That's yeah, so many times. A, he had so a strange denouement. His Barnet years were baffling as to how he ended up there and what he was doing. Did he, he think that he was fighting the robot army like he was in that Nike commercial and he just kept kicking people and like shooting balls into people's faces? Yeah. Is, that, is that what went down? Glasses were yeah, fogged his- up. Couldn't see who was kicking. That was the problem. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Barnet Fog. There we go. Barnet uh, Fog. Right. <laughs> uh, Dibs on that is my new nickname. <laughs> the Barnet Fog. It's yeah. Good, good team name. There we go. Get him in USL. Uh, Kenneth, thank you very much for that question. One final one for this episode from Ben Sunstrom, who asks, who is the Jim Harbour of soccer? Uh, Graham, we've assigned you 23 minutes to okay. uh, soliloquy on this one. Away you go. Uh, by the way, yeah, so listen, to... just uh, just uh, sorry, Graham, just to say he's an American football coach who's at Michigan oh, now. Of course, I know. I'm a, I've always a... been a big fan of uh, Jimmy Harbaugh, uh, yeah. to yeah. give it the proper Scottish pronunciation. <laughs> um, so the, the soccer equivalent of Jim Harbaugh could be someone who is known for their intense coaching style, strong personality, <laughs> and significant impact on their teams, much like Harbaugh has had in American football. A few candidates from the world of soccer who might <laughs> Did fit AI this description include... ChatGPT. I may have been consulted on this. You in Sports Joseph Mourinho, known for his intense and often confrontational coaching style Mourinho has been successful in various leagues around the world much like Harbot's success in both college and professional football in the US Diego Simeone the head coach of Atletico Madrid Simeone is known for his passionate and highly emotional approach to coaching as well as his ability to build strong cohesive teams Jurgen Klopp, currently managing Liverpool. Klopp is renowned for his enthusiastic, I'm I'm getting near the end here, enthusiastic sideline demeanour, his ability to motivate players and his success in turning teams into high-performing units. Each of these coaches share some similarities with Jim Harbaugh in terms of their coaching philosophy, their ability to inspire and lead their teams and their notable personalities. Did I pass the assignment, Ryan? 
Yeah, for, for more from Graham, listener, consult the Sports Illustrated website where he's now, uh, <laughs> he's now uh, producing content. They're very good, very good indeed. Um, so what was your answer? Jurgen Klopp or Mourinho? Mourinho, Simeone and Klopp. I, I feel like it's like three of the four just biggest picked. ones. Yeah, I, think you're being, I think Graham has been very generous to Jim Harbaugh. Uh, I'll take it a different direction. Uh, my memory of Jim Harbaugh was a, a good player because uh, I remember him from his, I believe, Colts days. Uh, turn coach. He was sort of born into the game. I think his dad was a coach. He has been at it his entire life. He became a good college coach after retiring who came close, uh, I think, to winning the national title with Stanford, but didn't win it. Then he becomes a a very good NFL coach who takes the Niners to the playoffs, I think, three times in his four years there. They hadn't been to the playoffs in like a decade until he takes over. Again, comes close and ends up leaving due to a power struggle with the front office. And he goes back to where he played college football at Michigan. And I think it's perceived as we're getting this very good coach. It's not like he flamed out in the NFL. It's not like he went there and did a Steve Spurrier and never won and then had to go back to the college game. It was basically he kind of felt disrespected uh, and ends up going to Michigan. But even then, since then, I think they've only won two two bowls and they've been to a plenty of bowl games, but they've only won two this year, I think is the one where they are more likely to win a national title or, or like we're in that conversation. Obviously I've not followed college football that closely, but then they have the sign stealing scandal where they're accused slash found to have uh, basically been scouting teams when they weren't supposed to be scouting them. You're not allowed to send people to watch games in college football, as I understand it. So there's a bit of a cloud. He gets suspended, I think six games in total. Uh, and so there's, a bit of a controversy there. So I would say he is a, a good coach with a long track record at various programs of various sizes, gets a lot of hype, not able to fully realize that hype uh, and potential at present, but maybe still could and has some some sort of cheating allegations along the way. I feel like Marcelo Bielsa could be a nominee there, though I think he's had maybe slightly more influence in coaching than Jim Harbaugh has. And the other one, Graham, that I feel like might be closer to home would be Brendan Rodgers. Because Harbaugh goes back to Michigan and is sort of seen as like, okay, you're coming back. You had a ton of success here, Mm. but now you really have to kick on to the next level and hasn't quite done that at present. So maybe Brendan Rodgers would be another one I'd throw in there. Is Jim Harbaugh the type of person to have a big portrait of himself in his own house? Yeah. A la Brendan Rodgers? Envelopes game? I don't know, but my money (laughs) says yes. My money says yes. (laughs) I like it. I think the Bielsa one is really good, Taylor. Um my my biggest uh, thoughts on Jim Harbaugh is ill-fitting khakis. Uh, so Bielsa doesn't wear his clothes very well either, I would suggest. So I think that's another comparison we can make. He's the anti-Nagelsman in terms of the uh, the fit, perhaps. Yeah. The anti-Nagelsman. Well, as we established at the start of this episode, maybe he's actually really fashionable. He's and a trailblazer. People idolize yeah. him, yeah. You're right, Baggy's you're back. right. Joe, um, uh, uh, Jim Harbaugh's pants uh, on point for you this uh, in 2023? Um, no, not not especially. It doesn't seem to me that Jim Harbaugh puts a, a ton of time into his fashion choices. And you know what? Uh, it's it's fine. He's too busy being suspended for Michigan. Yeah, I, I imagine this question is brought up within the context of the current University of Michigan sign-stealing scandal. So Bielsa is absolutely the right answer for me. Was in trouble, Marcel Bielsa, lest, us for, lest we forget for having someone on his staff sneak into a Derby County training session back in 2019. Frank Lampard got really whiny about it, understandably so. Mm-hmm. But that was a whole thing. And then Bielsa comes out later and said, literally, quote, we observed all the rivals yep. we played against. We watched all the training sessions before we played them. He just came out and said it and is still revered and is still viewed as one of the better coaches. This The cheating scandal is too perfect of a timing 
It's it's got to be Bielsa. Yeah, and, and I think Joe, the reason why I like connect them even further because you've laid it out well is he also that's when Bielsa gives that like forty slide long presentation yeah. on everything, which they is do a to short PowerPoint for a game. for Bielsa, by the way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> true, very true, and like genuinely, I think accurately said, Joe. Uh, but I think the point of that was like, yeah, we do that, but so does everyone else. Everyone scouts and and gets away with it, but also that is a fraction of what we do to win games and here's everything else we do in training and in preparation and in diet and in sleep and all the things that we do that is a tiny 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 thing and it does seem like that was sort of the michigan defense here i think like harbaugh himself hasn't been directly connected to it though he is the head coach of the team that was doing it uh it was like a staffer who was reporting to i think somebody in the team who's also been fired um Harbaugh only suspended and I think his argument would be like that's such a small part of what we do that like it happened but we weren't like privy to all the information so I think there's a connection there of they did it but it's not we paid refs and we you know paid the opposition quarterback to throw five interceptions or something like that I I found a a listicle of Jim Harbaugh quotes oh boy um so one of these quotes is I take a I take a vitamin every day it's called a steak uh, another quote: If worms had machine guns, then birds would be scared of them. So maybe Sean Dyche. I was, maybe that's yep. the comparison ah, there, dude. That sounds like every football coach I I, I ever had. Like for <laughs> real. Like I remember we had a coach once. We would have to watch Friday night. They would want to check in to make sure that everybody was was sober because the games were on Saturday. So you'd have to show up at like the team training room at a certain ta- hour, and it was called milk and cookies. You'd have to you'd get like a glass of milk and two cookies, and you'd watch a movie. So they made sure everybody was like behaving responsibly and i think the linebackers coach would only just show like footage of lions eating antelopes as a like that's right you got to attack and then you got to celebrate your victory with your friends like like it's it's that feels very football coach to me wow there's a lion quote here it says zoo lions get tired of zebra after a while and want filet mignon not jungle lions no idea what that means (laughs) i'm I'm picturing him graham getting up in the morning on the nightstand a glass of water and a filet to start his day very nice i like sounds ideal also if if worms had machine guns then sean dyche would be emaciated he'd go very hard he'd be in trouble yeah big trouble (laughs) he'd be scared of worms as well is that a like is that a quote akin to like if my grandma had wheels she'd be a bicycle like it's like sort of it doesn't matter like is that what he's trying to get at there like this isn't a logical thing to ask me I'm guessing I have yeah. no idea I've just read this quote Taylor I don't have any context for it Graham's gonna go ask ChatGPT about it and he'll report back I'm just yeah, trying to think of, of like just a like hey Jim how you feel about this weekend I'll tell you what I've been thinking about like I, that, I'm just trying to find a scenario in which he launches into that quote after being asked about the loss to Michigan State and hypothetical questions about what would he would have done differently, mm-hmm. he said he doesn't think about if that and if this scenarios mm-hmm. and brought up this hypothetical yeah. militarized worms situation. There you go. Power, power <laughs> move for him to go if that first and then if this second. I always think it's this and that rather than that and this. He's he's thinking he's thinking differently. Yeah, he thinks old, outside the box. Jimbo. Classic Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> Classic Jimmy. <laughs> oh, hey, classic Jimmy. All right, let's end listener questions right there. Graham Ruffin, thank you for everything you wrote up to and including the chat GPT for this uh, episode. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey. Uh, I didn't ask chat GPT for that sign off. That was a true original. Is Hang on, is this still chat GPT talking? I'm not. Who knows? Oh, Who knows? Oh. Welcome to the new world, Ryan. Wow. Impressive. Uh, Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always, my good man. I just like Taylor taking a deep inhale right as Ryan said, let's end this show, as if yeah. he was about to say something I else. Am. Taylor, am. go for it. I'm ceding my time to you. I've got one more, because the key <laughs> thing we forgot, 
Jim Harbaugh's brother is John Harbaugh. Yeah. I believe that's the same. Up who, in the Super Bowl. Is the current coach of the Baltimore Ravens. So you could argue maybe Jim had more success as a player and then John is having more success as a coach. So maybe that's Simone Inzaghi versus Pipo Inzaghi, like the more successful coaching brother versus the like less successful coaching brother, but more successful playing brother. That's yeah. what I'm going to put and also out there. It's, it, Italian football, there's got to be some cheating in there somewhere, <laughs> let's face it. So. <laughs> All right, lawyers on the way. Thank you very much, Taylor Rockwell, for your uh, last gasp contribution there. A very good one indeed. Uh, I apologize for prolonging the, this recording session. Imagine Ravens. If those worms had you know, machine guns, those Ravens would be in trouble. Taylor, boo, Ravens, boo. That's yeah. what I said. Okay. Uh, thank you, listener, the most is for joining us on this podcast. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. 